2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Warmer weather ratchets up tick activity. Have you already noticed ticks where you live? A warming planet also means more invasive ticks that can carry diseases that have also made their way to our region. Coming up, we hear from Dr. Godars Malai, a research scientist at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, about the ticks in our state, like the Asian longhorned and lone star ticks. And we learn about the diseases they can transmit Now, investigative journalist Mary Beth Pfeiffer also will join us. She's written the book, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. Now, my first guest says Lyme disease is the fastest growing vector-borne disease in the United States, and it's estimated 12% of the U.S. population. 55 million people will be affected by Lyme by 2050. So why hasn't there been a cure yet? Today, where we live, we talked to Dr. Stephen Phillips, who has written a book about vector borne diseases. He says the medical community's misunderstanding of infections that cause chronic illnesses leads to frequent misdiagnoses. He says it's time healthcare providers get to the root cause of various conditions instead of just focusing on one-size-fits-all medications to treat symptoms. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Dr. Stephen Phillips joins us on Zoom. He's based in Wilton. He's a Yale trained physician and co-author of Chronic, the hidden cause of the autoimmune pandemic and how to get healthy again. Dr. Phillips has treated over 20,000 people with complex chronic illnesses, including himself. And the co-author of his book is singer songwriter, Dana Parrish. Dr. Phillips, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for having me. Pleasure.
2: Uh, In your book, uh, when we think about this uh, time referred to as the Lyme Wars, your book helps to really detangle a lot of these diagnostic debates. And you describe a, quote, perfect storm of mysterious microbes and medical arrogance. So to start, you know, when we talk about the autoimmune pandemic, which is in your title, tell us more about this.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, autoimmune conditions have been described for Hundreds of years in some cases. And these chronic conditions, people have gotten, you know, medical science has gotten to the habit of treating symptoms. And, you know, the causes have been so mysterious that eventually many doctors have stopped looking. And in my own personal case, when I developed autoimmune illness over a period of a couple of months, I went from being completely healthy and able to run five miles to not being able to uh, walk to the bathroom within six months. And when I went to my three rheumatologists, one of them said, you know, we as rheumatologists don't focus on cause. We focus only on effect. And if we can suppress symptoms for the rest of your life, we call that a cure. And I was of the opinion that it's, it's not a cure. It's, it's, you know, suppression of symptoms, palliation, whatever word you'd like to use, but it's not a cure because they're not getting at the cause. And um, my, my, my basic tenet is how can you cure an illness if you don't know what's causing it? so i think an exhaustive investigation into cause is necessary
2: tell our listeners more about what happened with you and how you had to diagnose
0: yourself
1: well i had a case of lyme early on in med school and it was not disabling so that was my first experience with vector-borne illness it was troubling it was multi-systemic i had many many symptoms i went to a lot of doctors many infectious disease doctors and i quickly learned you know, that the field in general was a bit messed up, that every doctor had a different opinion and the medications weren't working like they said they would work. They definitely helped and the illness kept recurring. And it was that kind of situation. I was um, treated repeatedly over time and eventually I, I got better. But it took literally years of multiple rounds of antibiotics. And, and then, you know, I was in good state of health and I was just sleeping in my bed. And I woke up one day covered with spider bites on one arm. I had like nine or 10 spider bites. And, you know, who thinks that spider bites will make you sick? And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't take any special medications. And two months later, I had a, a rapidly progressive, very, very severe pain going down my neck into my back. And it just traveled down my entire spine, traveled out to my shoulders. And I went to many doctors and everybody thought it must be Lyme coming back. And I said, this feels nothing like my prior Lyme. And that was the only thing that, it's the only infection that people had really heard of. They didn't hear about the other many chronic infections that can cause illness, sometimes disabling illness. And I went to 25 doctors, literally 25 doctors, including doctors like myself and uh, infectious disease doctors, neurologists, rheumatologists, like they said, and the rheumatologist wanted to put me on immunosuppressives and the doctors like myself were treated with antibiotics and they weren't working well. They would flare me up. They would make me worse. There's something called a Herxheimer reaction. When you treat an active infection, some infections can cause a worsening of symptoms. As you get treated, it's you know oversimplified into a die-off reaction. But mine were very complex. And to make a very long story short, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't take care of myself. I had to give up my practice. I ended up within six months of those spider bites being completely bed bound. I needed 24 hour home care. I couldn't turn over in bed on my own. I couldn't sit up on my own. Obviously couldn't get to the bathroom on my own. And I saw what it was like to be, you know, an 85 year old man in a nursing home. I had lost 50 pounds. I became profoundly anemic and I had 102 fever every night and I was losing my vision. So... Uh, you know and and this actually the list goes on and on and and I I didn't treat myself actually for uh that first year and a half and as I became close to death I finally kind of put the pieces together and I just really my doctors still treated me but it was when I put my foot down and said look I've been doing everything I've been a, a very like pristine really, you know compliant patient for a year and a half I'm like completely completely like moribund at this point and this is how i'd like my care to go and they said well we got nothing (laughs) to to help you so just have at it tell us what to do and that that's when i turned around and i I got better and been back to good health and i've been back in practice since 2013 and uh and uh then you know then we decided things have to change and we ended up writing this book
2: And so because of your background, you were able to help yourself get better uh, when there were some different misdiagnoses. Uh, You also write that even the word chronic in the context of Lyme is stigmatized. It can be a a big blind spot. So uh, tell us more. Yeah, I
1: mean, look, you know, the studies vary, but there are many studies showing high, high levels of chronic illness after Lyme even caught early and treated with standard therapy. So Depending on who you ask, like the IDSA, which is Infectious Society of America, frequently quotes this like 10 to 15% or something, or 5 to 10% rate of chronic illness. I don't think it's true. There are many studies showing 20, 25% rates. And some studies, like the study Johns Hopkins, that's very well documented, where 39% of people that were treated with the earliest stage of Lyme, the time, you know, at the phase where there's a rash and they're tree with standard antibiotics for, you know, a few weeks to a month and they had a functional impact or same symptoms up to a year later. And Danbury Hospital, which is right up the street from my office, did a study, similar design. Again, erythema migrans, which is the name of the Lyme rash, the bullseye rash. And they treated patients with their month of antibiotics and 61% of the patients had the same symptoms a year later, so to deny that the chronic illness is there in, a, in in high percentages is just simply not not tenable. You know, I mean, we all know that this happens. Everybody that lives in the n- Northeast knows people that have had a terrible time with with Lyme, and the debate comes in to say, okay, well, what's causing these chronic symptoms? And some people believe in the term post Lyme, you know, syndrome. So post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and you say, well, what's that? And it's really defined as the same symptoms as Lyme that come on after you treat Lyme and anybody that looks at it kind of intuitively say, wait a second, what are the chances that another illness of mysterious etiology with the same symptoms is going to come on and replace that first disease and just be kind of autoimmune disease with the exact same symptoms. And this is made more troubling because The bacteria that causes Lyme, I don't know why it took 30 years of fighting to get to this point, but now major universities like Johns Hopkins and Tulane and Northeastern and even Tufts have all shown that in the test tube, we can't even kill the bacteria that causes Lyme with the antibiotics that are claimed to cure the illness by the IDSA. So things like doxycycline, they don't kill the the Lyme bacteria. And even the IV antibiotics, they don't effectively kill this bacteria. They kill... A portion of them, a majority, I would say, and then some persist. And they use the term persister, which is kind of a silly name, but that's the name they put at the portion of bacteria that these drugs just can't kill. And now we have amazing animal models where, you know, in monkeys, our closest relatives, that we show that we're not curing a large percentage of monkeys with the same um, medications that are supposed to cure people. And we have human data. There's about 75 human cases up to now, where they treated patients with months to literally even years of antibiotics and failed to cure them. And they've isolated the Lyme bacteria alive. So when people fight about whether there's such a thing as chronic Lyme, it's almost it's almost ridiculous at this point. But you know, doctors sometimes dig their heels in the sand, and sometimes these arguments aren't so much about science as it is about you know. I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's arrogance, maybe it's uh, ego, something, something other than science is driving some of the debate. I can tell you that.
2: You're hearing Dr. Stephen Phillips here on Where We Live, co-author of Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again. And so, Dr. Phillips, you know, your larger point that Lyme is just one of the pathogens that can cause these misleading autoimmunity issues. You also write, you know, there's no money in cures, or you've said this. And so it's a frustrating time for for many patients when they're trying to figure out what's wrong with them and they're... um, they're seen as a one-size-fits-all approach, as you mentioned, these antibiotics, that may or may not help them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so there's, yeah, there's two points. To that. I mean, the first thing is that um, drugs that are immunosuppressive are very lucrative, lucrative for the pharmaceutical industry because they are, in, by definition, annuities. They never cure. I mean, the relapse rates after some of these immunosuppressants are documented at over, like, 97 percent and the relapse rates after treating Lyme are high too, but they're nowhere near ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent. Um, and yes, there's definitely a one-size-all, uh, one-size-fits-all approach to the antibiotics, which is wrong. And you know, for example, the illness that um, the infection that really got me, it was uh, Bartonella. Um, it's a bacteria that's uh, multi-drug resistant. It's considered an emerging infectious disease. And in two thousand and ten, when I got sick, we didn't know. I couldn't, if you asked me to clinically differentiate a Bartonella infection from Lyme, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And the other doctors that do what I do also couldn't do it. Nobody could tell me what I had. And we knew it was out there, but nobody knew anything about it really. And um, just to, just to flesh out Bartonella before um, the HIV, you know, pandemic, they only knew about two species of Bartonella. In the last several decades, that explosion of knowledge about Bartonella has been, you know really just a, a huge a huge burst of published literature and there's now like 40 something recognized species of this infection and we realize that it is a ubiquitous infection it's very very common people think Lyme is common well Bartonella is extremely common too and there's all these like um stereotypes that are wrong about Bartonella that can only make people sick when they have a compromised immune system it's just not true and there's a a lot more data linking Bartonella to autoimmune conditions than there is for Lyme, actually. So. Mm-hmm.
2: And you've also written, you know, the cynicism in medicine, you know, really harms patients, which you get at in your book, uh, chronic. Many of these interviews you had were off record. Um, So when we think about people who feel stigmatized, you know, I'm wondering if you can share a memorable interview you had with a particular uh, patient who may not have felt comfortable even sharing their name because of how they were treated, what they experienced.
1: One of, one of the interviews that, that still haunts me, really, to this day, was we interviewed um, a young infectious disease fellow. So she was in fellowship at a very, very prestigious um, university, uh, top, top, top in the country. And uh, she had, had been diagnosed as a teenager with scleroderma. It was a very severe case. It was affecting her lungs. And they, she was her family, uh, it was told that she would not survive more than you know five years, probably. And there are no really good standard treatments for scleroderma and she, I didn't treat her. I don't, I didn't know her until this interview. And I, I, you know, was introduced to her and she found a doctor like myself and she got diagnosed with, uh, some chronic infection that was causing her scleroderma and she got completely well. And then she went on to be athletic again and do all the things that she loved and decided she wanted to be a doctor. And she, um, treats, uh, many patients including scleroderma patients who are frequently succumbing to like infections in an ICU and um, she has never been able to tell anyone about her story because she hears her other infectious disease doctor um, colleagues routinely discounting patients with Lyme for example and, and saying that they're, it's in their head and they're hypochondriacs and it doesn't really exist and instead of um Telling the scleroderma patients what she went through and how she got better and how it doesn't have to be this, you know, horrible poor prognosis. Um, she she was terrified. I guess she, she must have been so traumatized by what she went through as a child that she couldn't she couldn't do it. She didn't tell anybody. And I remember thinking, couldn't she just let like an article about the relationship of scleroderma to some infections fall out of her lab coat, like on the on the bed or something, and walk away? um but people approach these things in different ways and we tried to phrase it in the book to say look she's under tremendous pressure she's going to do really good things when she gets out as a doctor and she was worried that they would um of ruin her burgeoning career if she uh, told the truth but for people not to be able to tell their story and to feel that like they have to self-censor themselves it's a terrible situation you know we should all have freedom of speech and have the ability to discuss things openly and we opportunity to disagree, you know, civilly, and present the science, and that's how science moves forward. It doesn't move forward by, by hiding your views and being scared to speak your truth. And um, so that was an interview that I always felt was, um, you know, was particularly moving for me. Yeah.
2: I should mention, you know, occasionally we get pitches from our listeners uh, to where we live and Maggie Schaefer, who's a nurse and director of the Litchfield County Lyme Network. She's the one that recommended uh, your book to us. Uh, She actually called in during a show on Long COVID. And she told us you helped her in getting a Lyme diagnosis. I wanted to just quote her here. Um, She shared, this controversy greatly harmed my family and many others that I know. It's difficult to find a family who has not had someone infected. It is not just a big knee or bullseye rash. People are being misdiagnosed with uh, MS or fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, You actually spoke with someone, Dr. Phillips who was almost diagnosed with Munchausen's by proxy when they were trying to get his daughter a solid diagnosis. Can you tell us about mm-hmm. that?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing I just wanted, just uh, just semantics, I mean, I don't personally use the word misdiagnosis because I don't mm-hmm. say, think that, like I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and spondylitis, and spondylitis, it's not like they don't, have, it's not like they, they really are. The diagnosis of MS is correct. The problem is, what's causing the ms the problem is what's causing the rheumatoid arthritis you know this is the issue and doctors say this is a mystery we'll never figure it out the investigation stops and it's just about immune suppressants and there's this whole kind of like um, you know corralling of the 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 treatment toward this certain like pharma standard and it really is driven by pharma Um, in terms of uh, patients with munchausen's by proxy it's a horrible thing for these parents to go through when they're accused of making their child sick um there was some well-publicized cases where children were taken away um and held like in one case we said in the book a young girl was taken away from her family for i think it was over a year and it's really like she was in prison and um and then finally it was Legal battles and everything else, and the idea is to, if, if a Munchausen by proxy is a, um, it's a very rare psychiatric condition where, um, the caregiver is harming a, a minor to, you know, gain attention, and I've personally never seen it. Um, I did see in residency one case of actual Munchausens, which was so rare that his case was actually written up in multiple medical journals, and the reason that we we were able to diagnose him is that. He, he was, uh, we recognized them from, from medical journal articles on the topic. Like, he had, he had a bunch of stuff written about him. So, these are very, very, very rare conditions. And for them to be diagnosed kind of like, um, what's the word, like without taking this like grave responsibility of what it means to diagnose this and take a child away from a parent is just unconscionable.
2: Again, you're hearing Dr. Stephen Phillips, the Wilton-based Yale-trained physician and co-author of Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again. Uh, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Phillips after the break. And uh, as we've heard, there are many tick-borne diseases. Coming up, we're going to learn more about them and how climate change is helping invasive ticks spread in our state. And what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live you This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalva-Thanchel. My guest is Dr. Stephen Phillips, who's a physician and co-author of Chronic, the Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again. Now, earlier we talked with Dr. Phillips about vector-borne diseases like Lyme that are caused by a tick bite. Ticks carry pathogens or microorganisms that cause various illnesses. And the number of different ticks in our state carrying these pathogens is increasing. Climate change is one of the reasons invasive ticks have reached Connecticut. Joining us now on Zoom is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, an investigative journalist and author of The First Epidemic of Climate Change. Mary Beth, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So you've published your book in 2018. Uh, now that we're in 2022, what have you observed? What's changed, if anything, since
0: then? Well, um, it seems that year by year, things ratchet up in terms of tick-borne illness and the movement of ticks. And right now, um, we've covered, I think, Lyme disease and the the black-legged tick and all that's responsible for, but we're now seeing the Lone Star tick, which was a kind of Southern uh, tick that lived in Georgia and very comfortable in Southern climates moving further north year by year. It is now as far north as Maine. It has been in the U.S. It has also been spotted in Canada. And um, it comes with it a, a particular set of serious problems. The Lone Star, which has been found off the coast of of, um, Connecticut, I think it started on an island near Norfolk. It um, is moving, but we don't know how far inland it is yet. But it causes a number of illnesses. But one of the primary things that we're really concerned about now is an allergy that it causes. Uh, It's called alpha-gal syndrome. Um, And allergy sounds okay, something passing, you have the hives, but this is something life-changing. Any mammal meat, any uh, uh, related products like like butter um, can trigger an allergy. And a lot of these kinds of um, uh, substances that will cause the allergy are found in makeup and things of that nature. So that's just one problem. Um, And there's little doubt that this movement of lone star ticks, which can be recognized, by the way, by a little white badge on the backs of the female lone star, um, are moving because we have a warmer climate. In general, we have studies showing that a tick could not survive, for example, along the coast of Sweden and Norway at the 66th parallel. You know, uh, uh, 10 or 15 years later, they go and they see it at at the 69th uh, degree parallel of latitude. Um, So, this is documented by science. We are seeing ticks move. Um, You know, where we were perhaps 30 years ago, I'm in New York in the Hudson Valley, where there were some ticks but not many, well, Canada is at the same sort of spot right now. Canada is a new frontier for the movement of ticks and the development of the uh, illnesses they carry. And it's sort of been amped up even faster. It's moving perhaps 50 miles a year, you have um, ticks living where they did not live before. And similar to what we saw in the United States, there was a learning curve before doctors realized, oh, this uh, rash that I'm seeing might be caused by the bite of a tick. Um, Even now, that's not always the case in the United States, but it's, it's even less so in the places to which these ticks are moving. And, you know, this little doubt that that we uh, as uh, a, a species, the human beings have had a lot to do with this. Um, it's not only that ticks survive in places that are more mild, that are warmer. Climate change has also changed the humidity in a lot of places and ticks need moisture to survive. That's one of their enemies is drying out in the sun, uh, sunshine, which is why they, often will hide in, in, in grasses and in grassy areas. Um, but there there, you know, as I said, a little doubt um, in the scientific literature that these organisms, these the diseases they carry and these arachnids, um, eight-legged, animal, eight, eight-legged um, ticks, are moving to places where they could not survive before everything you shared, Mary Beth, is definitely troubling. Uh, for another
2: perspective, with us on Zoom, Dr. Gadars Malai, a research scientist for the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, also director of the Tick and Tick-Borne Diseases Surveillance Program. Dr. Malai, welcome.
3: Thank you for having
2: me. Uh, I wanted you to respond to what Mary Beth shared in terms of the environmental factors uh, that are impacting uh, these tick populations and having these invasive ticks moving into our region.
3: Yes, I agree with her that environmental factors, particularly climate change, is uh, playing an important role. However, I should add that the climate change is not the only factor that driving the tick uh, range expansion and spread uh, further north. There are other factors, including anthropogenic factors, those uh, factors that are caused by human activity as well as availability of hosts, including white-tailed deer and other hosts that help these ticks. They are in in a new region. uh, These factors help together for those tick species to thrive and spread their range.
2: Well, when we think about uh, your surveillance program, nearly half the ticks in our state, I understand, are coming back with infections. Nearly 6% have more than one infection or are co-infected. You called this a major pub- public health concern, Dr. Malai?
3: Yes, it is a major health, uh, public health concern uh, over the past several years. We have noticed that the range uh, of the tick species is uh, increasing and we are also seeing the uh, infection in ticks is increasing. So we used to have about 32 percent of ticks to be infected in our state. Now that has increased to 38 percent and in cases it has gone to up to 45 percent. In addition to single infection, we are also seeing ticks to be co-infected, meaning that a single specimen that are submitted to our laboratory turn out to be infected with two, sometimes three important tick infections, and that creates complexity for uh, diagnosis and treatment of uh, tick bone illnesses.
2: Before Dr. Malai runs through some of, of these invasive ticks that are in our state, Dr. Phillips is still with us. Uh, I understand you're reticent about using the term co-infection. Tell us why.
1: Only well, because some patients, uh, the so-called co-infections, are really the main infection. You can say in, in many cases is Ly- Lyme the co-infection. Um, you know, like I said, for me, Bartonellosis is the thing that stumped 25 doctors and. Almost killed me, and and Lyme was not going to minimize it. I wouldn't wish it on my my friends, but it, it for me it wasn't the one that disabled me. And you know, for other people, it's the opposite. I've had patients have horrible times with, with Lyme and develop very very severe conditions. But and, and and Bartonella likewise can be asymptomatic. So it's really a bit of investigative work to find out which of these infections uh, are making people the sickest. But The other thing is that we're kind of tapestries, Uh, infections work together. There is evidence that, um, you know, they've done multiple infection models in animals, and animals are kind of synergistically ill, and there's data about how various infections kind of work together in the body and can can make uh, increased levels of disease. And one other thing I wanted to just um, clarify, I had used the term bullseye rash, and I want to make sure that your listeners know that most cases of Lyme rashes are actually not bullseyes, about 90% are solid red rashes, and that many people don't develop rashes. So um, so I didn't want you know, listeners to just be on the lookout for a bullseye rash, because that's a, a lot of times that people have a bug bite and a suspicious syndrome of uh, symptoms that follow, and they just are looking for a bullseye rash that will delay getting appropriate care,
2: and who will want that. That's important that you mentioned that, Dr. Phillips. I wanted to take a quick call now. Sandy's calling in from Middletown. Sandy, what did you want to share? Sandy, are you there? Oh, it looks like Sandy can't hear us, so we'll go to Chris and Chaplin. Chris, you're on the show. What did I, you want to share?
4: I, I can hear you. Can oh, you yes. hear me?
2: <laughs> All right, now I you both can hear say. us. So let's go with Sandy first. Sandy, what did you want to share? Uh,
4: uh, Dr. Phillips has written an absolutely outstanding book. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Phillips, for sharing your own personal story in such depth. My clients, I'm a psychotherapist. Uh, my whole practice is Lyme disease patients and their families. Um, and uh, and uh my particular passion is about kids, about children with with borne diseases. There's so much uh um many of my clients have read your book, Dr. Phillips, and absolutely love the book uh and, and so learned much. from it supported by it, which is so great um uh lucy i I wonder whether you would want to do some type of a follow up on what these children are experiencing in their real lives uh, in schools, it's not only the doctors that don't understand what's going on with the, with the child. Uh, the schools uh, are, it could be a very, very major problem uh, and uh, with their lack of understanding and they're not realizing the extent of the symptoms and the problems, the bullying that, that goes on when a child has a motor tick, for example, uh, and the school, you know, very often doesn't do anything about it. It's a big story. Family members, extended family members don't understand. So that's it.
2: Thank you, Sandy, so much for calling in uh, to the show. Uh, I wanted to go back to Dr. Goudars Malai from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. So we've talked a couple of times now about the invasive ticks. Uh, So tell us about what concerns you most. Let's start with the lone star tick.
3: Lone star tick, uh, we first discovered established population of this tick species near Norwalk in uh, Fairfield County. And in subsequent years, in 2018, 2019, we discovered established population of this species further north in Fairfield and New Haven counties. And uh, based on the evidence of tick submissions to our laboratories, as well as our uh, surveillance that is informed by our passive surveillance and ticks that are submitted, to our laboratory, this tick uh, is is spreading rather rapidly throughout Connecticut. I have to add that the uh, single submission to any laboratory or single occurrence of this uh, tick species in any state does not indicate that this tick has established population in those states because ticks move around by birds, animals, even sometimes by humans. So, the fact that there are reports from Maine does not indicate that this stick has established population in the state of Maine or Canada. The northern edge of the distribution of this stick species is, is uh, New Haven County, Connecticut. However, there have been a few pop, pop, uh, populations in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and these populations have been there for a long time before even the latest range expansion of Lone Star began in the Northeastern United States.
2: The thing, that, the thing that concerns some people when they hear about Lone Star, uh, the Lone Star tick is that it's been reported it causes an allergy to certain animal products. What can you tell us?
3: Are you asking me?
2: Yes, Dr. Malai.
3: Yes. Uh, the, the loneliness arctic uh, is associated with an allergic reaction called alpha-gal syndrome. Alpha-gal syndrome is, alpha-gal is a sugar that is found in, in many products, many food products, and and some medical uh, equipment that, that might be used in surgeries and so on. And this alpha-gal sugar is also found in uh, lone Star Tick Saliva. So once a uh, tick, uh, a Lone Star Tick Bites a human, and uh, if that human is having some kind of uh, immune system issues, that might trigger a an allergic reaction. So that person will not only be allergic to uh, tick bite, uh, the person will would, would uh, show allergic reaction to red meat and some other uh, uh, food product that may contain alpha-gal. Lone star bite also causes a severe rash in humans, particularly larva, uh, larval or juvenile lone star. ticks causes uh, the rash that is, that is quite systemic and spread throughout the body, and we have had numerous cases of people uh, reporting to our laboratories and presenting uh, not only ticks, but also they volunteer to share the experience with us. It has been quite troubling. So not only lone star ticks involved in transmission of several important diseases, including ehrlichiosis, rickettsiosis, and two important viruses uh, that have recently been discovered, including Heartland and Bourbon virus. The lone star tick causes alpha-gal um, syndrome, as well as uh, a rather systemic rash in patients.
2: I understand you've also, Dr. Malai, uh, collected nearly a thousand Asian longhorn ticks in recent weeks by standing in one particular populated spot. So tell us about, you know, how you uh, make the decision to go to particular areas in our state and then tell us more about this particular tick.
3: So people, uh, uh, residents of Connecticut uh, directly or through health departments or physician's offices, they submit ticks to our laboratory. And once we realize that receiving certain ticks from certain regions uh, are, are quite unusual, then we immediately Dispatch our uh, forces and go to those areas and investigate the the area to, to examine the extent of infestation of those areas. In 2018, we received a single specimen of a tick that has bitten or had bitten a child, a six year old child, and we investigated that tick both through morphological investigation as well as molecular studies, and we found out. That tick uh, is uh, unusual and it, we don't have it. We didn't have it in the region, and it turned out to be the Asian longhorn tick. In subsequent years, we continued our surveillance and we found out that this tick has established population in Fairfield and later on uh, in 2020 in uh, New Haven County. It is remarkable that any places that we have established of this. Uh, tick species, the population is unlike any other tick species. Uh, it takes less than an hour to collect um, over 800 tick specimens as we did a couple of weeks ago. It is when I'm referring to collection, it's not just collection. You just enter into the area, all of a sudden you realize that your entire coverall is covered by, by, by this uh, tick. And the reason for that is that unfortunately, in the United States, this tick species uh, can reproduce only through partner genetic uh, reproduction, meaning that uh, females do not even need a male partner to reproduce. In other words, uh, under normal condition, uh, a 50% of ticks turn out to be males, another 50% turned out to be females. But in the case of this tick species, In the United States, unfortunately, uh, all the tick eggs turn out to be females and females keep going without reliance on male partner. And that is why we are going to have major problem with regards to spread of the stick species throughout the region. It is not just the uh, spread and and nuisance uh, feature of the stick species. The stick is involved in transmission of... Nearly 30 important disease agents. So far, we have not had any report of human illness caused by this tick species. But unfortunately, about a month ago, we discovered in our laboratory that this stick carried all three important disease agents, including Borrelia uh, burgdorferi, the causative agent for Lyme disease, causative agent for babesiosis, and Anaplasmosis and some of the ticks that we examined had both uh, infection with uh, Lyme disease and babesiosis agent. In addition, uh, even though earlier report indicated that this tick might not be competent vector of uh, Lyme disease and babesiosis and anaplasmosis agent, we showed that in in our uh, studies that this tick takes partial blood meal in other words if this takes a uh, partial blood meal from an infected host like a rodent or or other animals it if and in the subsequent blood meal if it decides to fight humans that can easily uh, bring the infection to humans regardless of whether it is competent or it is not
2: so we're going to focus on prevention after the break. Uh, Dr. Ghadars Malai from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station will stay with us. But I want to thank Mary Beth Pfeiffer for coming on the show, an investigative journalist and the author of Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change. Thank you, Mary Beth. Also staying with us is Dr. Stephen Phillips, co-author of Chronic. And we'll continue taking your questions after the break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalba-Thanchel. As we heard, the Lone Star tick, the Asian Longhorn tick, are among the invasive species moving into our state. And they can carry diseases. So how should Connecticut residents think about prevention when outdoors, especially with warmer weather? What questions do you have? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Dr. Goddars Malai is still with us, research scientist for the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and director of the tick and tick-borne diseases surveillance program. So Dr. Malai, when we think about warmer weather ahead, uh, best tips for prevention for our listeners?
3: People in our uh, state and throughout the region should realize that uh, we no longer are worried uh, with, uh, or we are not just worried about uh, black like tick and Lyme disease, we have to be worried about several tick species, and we have to realize that we live in an area that is infested heavily with uh, native and, ticks, uh, and, and invasive tick species. Therefore. Uh, we have to identify these areas that are wooded area, grassy areas that are infested with uh, ticks, and uh, if we could avoid these areas at any cost. So this is the number one uh, suggestion that I could make to our residents. Another suggestion would be that if we end up going to those areas that are infested with ticks, we need to uh, wear uh, light color clothing, tuck our pants into our socks, wear uh, long sleeve shirts, and also try to spray our coveralls or our clothes with uh, pesticide. And if we have exposed skins, use a repellents to repel these uh, ticks. The number one. Uh, important factor that CDC also suggests is uh, to do a thorough check. This is the uh, key for protecting ourselves. Immediately after outdoor activity within maybe two or three hours maximum, we need to entirely examine our body and particularly those areas that are hidden and we cannot easily see as for a uh, family member to help us to identify and remove those ticks and immediately uh, bait and take shower and also examine one more time under the shower to make sure ticks are not attached. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Malai. We just have a few minutes left. I wanted to get back to Dr. Stephen Phillips, who's still with us, co-author of Chronic. Uh, Dr. Phillips, your website reads, your backyard shouldn't be a scary place. So what would you like to add to what Dr. Malai shared
0: with us?
1: I think that was a good summary. Um, I think that that what I would add also is that ticks are not the the only... um, the only threats um you know fleas can spread bartonella very quickly um ticks usually spread things slowly with the exception of certain pathogens things like Powassan didn't come up uh, today in today's show um you know there's just recently a, another Powassan case in connecticut and i had the unfortunate experience of a patient coming down with Powassan about nine months ago who's in a coma for months and months and months and is still very seriously ill and Watson's a virus that could be transmitted within 10 minutes of a tick bite, maybe 15 minutes. So um, I would even maybe suggest so so much further that they should check kind of immediately without delay of two to three hours as soon as people come inside to do that tick check and to recognize that I don't know what a safe bug bite is anymore. Not to induce paranoia, but I, I don't, ever since my first case of Lyme, I didn't even go on grassy areas at all anymore. I just took up you know cement and sports i played tennis i went running I, I skied and uh i really didn't you know expose myself to uh to you know areas where there are ticks and, and i got sick while i was sleeping and nobody thinks that spiders can transmit illness and yet there was a, a case a series published where a whole family one by one got sick from spider bites and that was a, a spider that you know uh, feeds on lice and like Dr. Ly mentioned with um, uh, the, the partial feeders, you know, even incompetent vectors, if they partially feed on, on an animal, they can, if they feed multiple times, they can still potentially transmit. And there's been documented stuff about multi-resistant bacteria that are isolated from spider fangs. So nobody talks about illness that's spread by spiders, I and mean, it's really not even discussed. So fleas obviously as well, and then certain biting flies, like deer flies. Um, so Bartonella can be spread by multiple di- different types of vectors. I just wanted to point that out. And and I agree 100% about the uh, the prevention against tick bites because it's super important. And uh, and that can save people the world of hurt. The other thing that I can um, talk about is that in my patients, and Yale's done two studies, one says yes, treat tick bites, and another says no. And most doctors don't, or if they treat, they treat with one dose of doxy. We offer my, patient, my patients, you know, if they call the dick bite, I give them two weeks of doxycycline. You know, I was on doxycycline for several years as a kid for acne, and I never even had bad acne. And you know, everyone has a different uh, opinion about this, but I really think that from a risk-benefit ratio, to give somebody two weeks of doxycycline for a dick bite, it makes sense to me. And um, if you can avoid a lifetime of chronic illness, I think that's, uh, that's a, rel- a relatively safe medicine to do so.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Stephen Phillips, again, co-author of this uh, great book, uh, Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy. Again, uh, great tips for uh, readers, but also how to advocate for themselves. Again, the, as you mentioned, the one size fits all doesn't work when we're talking about uh, illnesses uh, that people get from the vector-borne disease. Thank you so much for your time. And also Dr. Ghadars Malai, Research Scientist for the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. Today's show produced by Katie I'm Lucy Nalpa-Fanchel. Thanks for joining us.